This is the Historian's Podcast. It's a pleasure to welcome Renee Baker to the program. How are you doing, Renee? I'm doing great, Bob. How are you? Okay. Renee Baker is with I Smile in New York. She's a professional actress and singer. And for the past 20 years, she's led a large troupe of holiday carolers from the Broadway community who perform under the names of the fabulous Fezziwigs and the Broadway Carolers, with uh, Carolers uh, getting a C-A-R-E in that, the word care. Renee is also the author of an upcoming book, Defeating Scrooge, Harness the Power of Christmas Carols to Revive Your Spirit Any Time of Year. And we're going to talk with her about the history of caroling and the history of carols. Uh, What has the study of the history of carols done for you? Oh, I'll make that as short as I can. But Truthfully, it has helped me regain, revive my joy. That's what I'm writing the book about, uh, Defeating Scrooge. Because I've always had the corner on the market, I think, with Christmas spirit. I've always had Christmas spirit to spare. Uh, But one year... I thought this was about five years ago, so I've been uh, professionally caroling for about 15 years at that time, and my spirit was just missing, and I didn't know what to do. I was in the middle of the season, uh, so I, I had to do something that I'd never done before, never want to do again, which was fake my way through the season. And then in January, as I was taking the tree out to the curb and sleeping up the needles, I'm asking myself, what happened, and how can I never let that happen again, because it was painful. Mm-hmm. Well... Very long story short, I traced my way back through the year to an event that disappointed me so much and caused me to lose faith in my in, in humanity and in my own judgment. Uh, you know, it fractured a fundamental rock of my belief in the good in all people. So I knew I had to do something. So I hadn't realized until then how precious my Christmas spirit was to me and how I actually relied on it to recharge my spiritual battery each year. So as I'm sweeping up the needles... A caroling book from one of my carolers was lying on top of his uh, top hat box. It was literally under my nose, and I thought, hmm, I wonder. And I set out to study a carol a week throughout the year mm. and look at it from angles that I never had before. And uh, by the way, it worked. It reset mm. my biggest spirit trigger. So now I give workshops and, and help other people to tend to their spirits. But it was really looking at carols from all sorts of different angles that I never had before, which included the history of them. Um, and, and it really did help revive my spirit. And I now every season I hear these words or I hear them sung or I sing to myself. And it's got a whole new life. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, well, tell us about the history of caroling itself. This is an oral tradition, is it not? True. Oh, it is. Yes, it is. And the word caroling is actually an ancient word that was used to refer to dancing or singing songs of praise or joy. But something I didn't know before is that this practice took place not just during the winter holiday season, but all seasons of the year in the Dark Ages. And uh, they were about a wide range of subjects. So the first recorded date of Christmas being celebrated on December 25th was in the year 336. So a few years later, Pope uh, Julius I officially declared the birth of Jesus would be celebrated on the 25th of December. And when that happened, it was only natural that these carols that were being sung would now be adapted to celebrate Jesus during the Christmas season. Unfortunately, the leaders of the Roman Catholic and Anglican churches took a stand against the use of pagan music, which in their defense (laughs) were sometimes tunes to drinking songs, uh, with Christian messages. So these earliest Christmas carols are lost. 
Mm. Also, some of the joy was lost as the, the, the church controlled Christmas music for 1,800 years, and everything was in Latin. But once the common folk were able to take the music, take over the music form, the things got perky again. And you know, I just love Fra- uh, Saint Francis of Assisi. Mm-hmm. In 1223, he conduct he he constructed a nativity scene outside of his church, and this was already a tradition that somebody else had created. But he added to it. He invited children to join him within the display, and he taught them the carols in their own language rather than in Latin. And it said that a new spirit of joy enraptured them once they were able to understand what they were singing about. So St. Francis grew this joyful tradition into what we know now as nativity plays or Christmas pageants, which were wildly popular, and they spread all through Europe. And the clergy, of course, were scandalized because not only was the music easily associated with uh, secular unholiness, but the Mm -hmm. words were often biblically incorrect. So uh, there was a movement to ban the songs written by anyone who wasn't trained clergy. But the music being sung in the churches was considered very dry and boring, and the common folks were getting such joy from these Christmas carols that they just ignored the ban, and they sang these carols every year in their homes and on their streets, and not just, and not, just not inside you know, church buildings. And the next thing you know, carolers were found all over Europe, even professional ones. Yeah. And w- at what time period are we talking about again? Oh, this would be the 1500s. Okay. At this point. And, uh, and before. And then uh, traveling singers would, would tour from town to town and entertain audiences with these carols all through December. And they'd leave one town and they'd go to the next. But the audiences kept singing the songs. So uh, this joyful tradition, you know, continued and they kept learning these songs. And the, and the, the clergy were afraid that their loss of control over the music would translate to people losing their faith. So they continued to fight their battle with it. But in the 1500s, in Germany, Martin Luther gave his stamp of approval over these songs and won over a great many German Christians to the songs. And importantly, it was in Germany where the craft and tradition of carols and caroling seemed to become perfected, and it was largely because of Prince Albert bringing his Christmas traditions with him from Germany to England when he married Queen Victoria in 1840, that the traditions took such a stronghold in England. Hmm. Yeah, Prince Albert loved Christmas, he loved singing, he loved Christmas and the carols, and so they taught their children the carols in German and English, and the London newspapers covered it, and soon Victorian Christmas carolers were everywhere. Uh, So now this is the 19th century, and the carols were now a reflection of joy and wonder at the birth of Christ, and the clergy were now on board, and you you could sing these carols inside churches and even during church services, but... Rewind, again, to the 16th century in the English-speaking parts of Europe and what would become the United States. And there we find a much more dangerous and tragic history of carols. So, um, I'm, well, I'm sorry, I'm confused. Yeah. You said in parts of Europe called the United States? No, no, in, parts of Europe, in, in the English-speaking parts of Europe. And what would become the United States. Oh, what would become the United States. Yeah, okay. sorry about that. And, uh, yeah, so if we look at a favorite that my carolers and I usually say goodbye at the end of uh, the uh, at the end of a, a set of caroling with we wish you a merry christmas mm-hmm. so we wish you a merry christmas we wish you a merry christmas we wish you a merry christmas and a happy new year 
Lovely, right? A nice yeah. holiday wish. But hold on. This song was nowhere near as lovely as we may think of it today. This was actually a song that made homeowners and their families shake with fear when they heard it outside their doors. Really? See, most, yeah, most people don't realize that back then, Christmas was not a worshipful holiday. In fact, it was more like Mardi Gras or St. Patrick's Day. Worse even, drunkards, bullies, looters, and rapists going door to door of the wealthier residents. That, and, and they'd make their rude demands by singing them at the door. So today the song is, of course, jolly and full of goodwill. But not then. The, the police were on high alert on Christmas Day back then. And the homeowners would listen carefully as the singers approached. Because though only two verses uh, remain, which have a hint of the sinister nature of what mm-hmm. this carol started out as, mm-hmm. there used to be many. They would make them up, depending on what they wanted. And, and the troop would they'd make their demands in verses like these. Now bring us some figgy pudding. Yeah. Now bring us some figgy pudding. Now bring us some figgy pudding. And a cup of good cheer. And then, of course... I've always been a little disturbed by this part. We won't go until we've got some. We won't go yeah. until we get some. We won't go until we get some. So bring some out here. So they really wanted that figgy pudding. You better bring it out. Yeah, they meant it. They weren't going to go away until they got what they came for. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, they didn't just ask for food. Sometimes they demanded money and household items. And the families would go scurrying around getting these kinds of items ready for the group. And they usually opened their doors and tried to meet their demands because if they didn't, the men often knocked down the doors and took whatever they wanted. And some of these homeowners and some of the singers were actually killed, and many were injured during these not-so-merry encounters. Wow. Right? I tell you, we're talking with uh, Renee Baker of I Smile in New York Productions. She does Christmas caroling and has delved into the history of Christmas carols. More with her in just a moment. We depend on your contributions of financial support to keep going with the Historian's podcast. We're not going to sing it, but uh, we do. Uh, and we're not going to uh, demand it like the, she's just describing how they used to do years ago about the figgy pudding and so forth. But if you'd like to make a donation, go online to gofundme.com forward slash 2017. Or you can send a donation in the mail, make the check out to Bob Cudmore, send it to 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. And thank you. And Renee Baker is with us. We're talking about the history of uh, caroling or Christmas caroling. And you've been telling me uh, as we prepared for the interview uh, that the story of the 12 days of Christmas, which always was one of my, or has been over the years, been one of my uh, favorites, is a, is kind of a lengthy one and an interesting one. Mm-hmm. My my sister was a music teacher, uh, oh. so we used to sing this a lot, and her classes always sang it. But uh, tell us about the origin of this particular uh, Christmas song. Oh, I will, but first let me ask you, what, what does this carol make you think of? I don't How know, do... Renee. <laughs> <laughs> this is okay. I mean, I always just thought of it as a, as a silly ditty that was you know, catchy enough to last all Yeah, something like that. Right, yeah. So, um, well, it's actually considered one of the most successful secret codes of all time. And we're going back to the 16th century again. The Church of England was the only legal Christian denomination allowed by law Mm -hmm. in England. British Catholics were forbidden from practicing their faith. So Catholics who were caught speaking about, writing about, or teaching the Catholic faith faced horrific penalties. In some cases, they were drawn and quartered or hung. And the children were subject to the same laws and penalties. 
Uh, so rather than betray their faith, they went underground. They held secret masses. They studied behind closed doors in their homes. They hid all outward signs of their faith. And to help teach the children, Catholic clerics wrote a secret code, which was put to a, such a catchy carol tune that it became popular even amongst the unsuspecting royalty or heads of the Anglican Church, mm-hmm. which is kind of neat. Uh, what is significant about the 12 days is that the 12 days begin on Christmas Day. Not everybody understands that. Some people think it starts 12 sure. days before Christmas, but it starts on Christmas Day, the day we observe the birth of Jesus, and it ends on January 5th, the Epiphany, when we observe the day when the wise men came to honor the newborn king and give gifts. And importantly, it wasn't just the Catholics who celebrated the 12 days. In the Dark Ages, these 12 days fell in the darkest, coldest times of the winter. And people would not typically work at their jobs on these days, but they would attend church service every day, mm-hmm. contemplate and reflect. It was a time of prayer and rededication and renewal of their faith. So let's just unpack this. On the first day of Christmas, my true love gave to me. First of all, the children were taught that this true love is not like a romantic crush. It's The true love is God. And the person who receives the gifts is anyone who has accepted Christ as their Redeemer. And the gifts each represent an important element of the Roman Catholic faith. A partridge in a pear tree. The partridge is Jesus. The reason for the season right there at the top of the song. Uh, Christ is symbolically represented as a partridge. And a couple of interesting bits about that. A mother partridge will feign injury to decoy predators from her helpless nestlings, which recalls Christ's sadness over the fate of Jerusalem. As he says in Luke uh, 13:34, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I have sheltered you. I would have sheltered you under my wings as a hen does her chicks. Also, a, a partridge is the only bird who will die to protect its young. Hmm. Pretty cool, right? Um, on the second day of Christmas, my true love gave to me two turtle doves. So, two turtle doves. The two turtle doves are the Old and New Testament. So, you've got the complete story of the Christian faith, but also doves are significant. Back in the days when worshippers would buy animals outside the temples to sacrifice to God, there would be all sorts of livestock and such that ranged from very expensive all the way to the very cheapest, affordable to anyone which was doves. And as you know, Jesus turned over these tables outside the temples, and this was just shortly after Jesus was baptized in the Jordan by John the Baptist. And right when that happened, the heavens opened up and the Spirit of God descended in the form of a dove and alighted on Jesus. So the dove is a sign of Jesus being the sacrifice for all people. Mm -hmm. Okay. On the third day of Christmas, my true love gave to me three French hens faith, hope, and love. Corinthians 13, 13. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the fourth day of Christmas, my true love gave to me four calling birds, the four Gospels. Christ's four calling birds are the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. On the fifth day of Christmas, my true love gave to me, you know you want to sing this with me, five golden rings. The five golden rings represent the first five books of the Torah, mm-hmm. the books of Moses. Genesis, which in Hebrew is Bereshit, which means in the beginning. Exodus, Shemot, which means names. Leviticus, Vayikra, which means, and he called. Numbers, Bavidmar, in the wilderness. And Deuteronomy, Devarim, which means words. 
on the sixth day of Christmas, my true love gave to me six geese a laying. And what did they lay? The six days in which God created the world. Mm-hmm. On the seventh day of Christmas, my true love gave to me seven swans a swimming. The seven swans a swimming represent the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit wisdom, understanding, counsel, fortitude, knowledge, piety and fear of the Lord. On the eighth day of Christmas, my true love gave to me eight maids a-milking. Now, the eight maids a-milking represent the eight Beatitudes. Remember them from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount? Mm -hmm. Uh, One, blessed are the poor in spirit. Two, those who mourn. Three, the meek. Four, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Five, the merciful. Six, the pure in heart. Seven, the peacemakers. Mm -hmm. And eight, those who are persecuted for righteousness. And I think, importantly, being a milkmaid in uh, Old England was one of the lowliest jobs there was during the time, which accentuates the message of Jesus caring about the meek and lowly. On the ninth day of Christmas, my true love gave to me nine ladies dancing. The nine ladies dancing are the nine fruits of the Holy Spirit. So uh, we have the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit, and this would be the fruit of from those gifts. So the nine fruits of the Holy Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's from Galatians 22 to 23. The Catholic uh, Catechism says that the fruits of the Spirit are perfections that the Holy Spirit forms in us as the first fruits of eternal glory. On the tenth day of Christmas, my true love gave to me Ten lords a-leaping. Any guesses on this one, Bob? No, go ahead. Okay. The lords, you know, were judges, and uh, the ten represent the ten commandments. So you've got, one, you shall have no other gods before me. Two, you shall not make idols. Three, you should not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Four, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Five, honor your mother and father. Six, you shall not murder. Seven, you shall not commit adultery. Eight, you shall not steal. Nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And ten, you shall not covet. On the eleventh day of Christmas, my true love gave to me eleven pipers piping. This is the eleven faithful disciples of Christ who carried out the gospel. Mm -hmm. Simon Peter, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Mm -hmm. Thomas, Matthew, James, Thaddeus, Simon and Bartholomew, and missing from this list, of course, is Judas. Uh On the twelfth day of Christmas, my true love gave to me twelve drummers drumming. I guess they wanted to drum the twelve points of the Apostles' Creed into those young heads. So each drummer represents one of the twelve points of the Church's doctrine. One, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Two, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. Three, he was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Four, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. Five, on the third day he rose again, he ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Six, he will come again to judge the living and the dead. Seven, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Eight, the Holy Catholic Church. Nine, the communion of saints. Ten, the forgiveness of sins. Eleven, the resurrection of the body. Twelve, and life everlasting. Amen. So those were the 
Feel free to join me. Twelve drummers yeah. drumming, eleven pipers piping, ten lords are leaping, nine ladies dancing, eight maids are milking, seven sons are swimming, six keys are laying, five golden rings, four calling birds, three French hens, two turtle doves, and a partridge in a pear tree. Well, well done, Renee. <laughs> However, I have a you know, an objection to raise. I, you know, I wish I were better prepared, but in, I did a little bit of research to uh, before talking with you, and I was reading on Wikipedia, of course, that the uh, description that you give that this is sort of coded Christianity in the 12 days is not generally accepted as uh, what that song really means. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, what I thought was more interesting was it was described uh, in the Wikipedia as a memory and forfeit game, which I think they used to do in the uh, olden days, where if you didn't remember the things right, you had to forfeit something. In other words, maybe, uh, I don't get some sort of penalty, and if you got them right, you got some kind of uh, reward. That does sound like a fun game that probably came from this tradition, and I know that there are there are uh, online articles that uh, try to debunk this, but... Um, the majority, if not all, of the Catholic scholars agree that this is actually the uh, the origins of this song. And in terms of the song itself, apparently it was first published in 1780 without music, but then um, someone gave it music in the last century, I believe. Is that correct? Um, in 1909, a man named Frederick Austin. You know what? That part I hadn't seen. Well, it, well, it says that um, he... I mean, Frederick Austin, 1909, set the melody and lyrics, including changing collie to calling birds. Apparently, f- first they were oh, yes. collie birds. Oh, right. And uh, he added uh, to his own, uh, he, apparently he's the guy or person who uh, gave the drawn-out cadence of the five golden rings. Oh. Uh, and I forget, it said in the piece what the, the song was, but uh, I forget what song he used to, to do it. So this is a guy who really knew how to create a hook. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah, but um, yeah, so he maybe he changed the music, but they did. I, I did read in, in a few different sources that the they did put it to music, and that they were even even the people, the Anglicans, were singing it, and that's how it spread. Well, yeah, I think it got to be very well. Yeah, it appears it's generally popular and yeah, popular, and they and they had no idea what they were doing was you know spreading this Catholic code. Another uh, carol, uh, we have you know, a few minutes left here, uh, that you wanted to talk about its origin was Good King Wenceslas. Uh, it's my favorite carol of all. I've always loved, you know, the kind, charitable, merciful, strong character in this carol. So I was really glad to learn that Good King Wenceslas is actually based on historical facts. He was a royal ruler, and his subjects adored him because he went out every day touching the lives of the poorest among them. Wenceslas was a twin. He was born just just minutes before his brother Boleslaus, and some some called his brother Boleslaus the Cruel. Uh, they were the sons of Duke Vratislaus of Bohemia. Now, the Duke's mother, the twins' grandmother, Ludmilla, was a woman of deep Christian faith, and for some reason, she was the primary caregiver of Wenceslas. Uh, and it was she who instilled in him the importance of faith and hope. And charity, and the, the twins' pagan mother, Drahomira, <laughs> can you believe that name? Mm. You can just hear the minor chord, right? Um, she was the primary caregiver of Boleslaus. So in the year 921, 
when they were only 15 years old, their father was killed in battle, and Wenceslas became the ruler of Bohemia, uh, with his Christian beliefs guiding him. So, in what echoes an Old Testament account, you know, Wenceslas's mother and brother led a pagan revolt. They assassinated Grandmother Ludmilla as she prayed. Now, remember, he was just a teenager, but Wenceslas was able to overcome the rebellion, and he astounded his subjects by being merciful and exiling his brother and mother instead of executing them, which he could have done. So, in spite of his youth, Wenceslas was credited with having the wisdom of Solomon in setting up a nation built on true justice and mercy. And the laws he enacted, he did so to best serve his Lord. Hmm. And as the verses tell us, he really did go out into the country meeting with his subjects and finding out what they needed. He had a big heart for the poor. And he not only urged his wealthier subjects to reach out to them, but he himself shared what he had with them. You know, he was like an early example of Santa Claus. He loved Christmas. And centuries before it was a tradition to give gifts on Christmas, he had a yearly ritual of going out into the country the day after Christmas of the Feast of St. Stephen and uh, bringing gifts of food, clothes, firewood to the poorest of his subjects. And even when the weather was frightful, like the song says, and his men tried to persuade him to postpone his trip, it didn't stop him. Uh, so he inspired a lot of people, and he won many pagans over to Christianity. And actually, he started, it was a historical revival in that country. Um, and it seems he may have been even responsible for the conversion of his pagan brother, Boleslaus, <laughs> and some thugs that he'd assembled. So Boleslaus got these guys together, and this is very sad, but they assassinated Wenceslaus as he was going into church one day. And uh, Boleslav immediately regretted what he'd set in motion. And, and in fact, it said that he was devastated. And so legend has it that Boleslav had a son being born at the very moment Wenceslav was murdered. And Boleslav repented and dedicated the life of his son to Christianity and a clergyman's education. And he also had a daughter who became a nun. So as the new ruler, Boleslav, insisted on keeping the Christian ways of Wenceslas and perpetuating his legend. So, huh. yeah, it was because of his brother who had him murdered that we know of Wenceslas and his charitable ways today. And we're talking about the period in the 900s or around 1000 Yeah, 921 um, was the year that he became, he became the, uh, the duke. Oh, and later on, he was, he was uh, posthumously given the title of king. Hmm. So... King actually is correct, even though he was a duke while he was alive. Well, and, and again, in my reading, and maybe you uh, came across this and maybe not, that the tune in English uh, was uh, uh, English hymn writer John Mason Neal in 1853 oh, yes. wrote the Wenceslas lyrics, and the carol first appeared in Carols for Christmas Tide in 1853. Yes. They sent it to the melody of a 13th century spring carol. Yes, yes, I've read the same thing. Yeah. yeah. So one, one thing, oh, and it says that the, I think it was first published in a Finnish song collection, not as in finished, but as in Finnish. the country Finland. <laughs> can, you, the can, can you sing a little bit of Good King Wenceslas? Oh, sure. 
Good King Wenceslas looked out on the feast of Stephen. When the snow lay round about, deep and crisp and even, brightly shone the moon that night, though the frost was cruel. When a poor man came in sight, gathering winter fuel. Can you finish uh, the program, Renee, with a few bars of God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen? Absolutely. God rest you merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we had gone astray. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. You've been listening to the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore.